trying to predict the future is a discouraging and hazardous occupation because the prophet invariably falls between two stools. If his predictions sound at all reasonable, you can be quite sure that in 20 or at most 50 years, the progress of science and technology has made him seem ridiculously conservative. On the other hand, if by some miracle a prophet could describe the future exactly as it was going to take place, his predictions would sound so absurd, so far-fetched, that everybody would laugh him to scorn. This has proved to be true in the past, and it will undoubtedly be true, even more so, of the century to come. The only thing we can be sure of about the future is that it will be absolutely fantastic. So, if what I say now seems to you to be very reasonable, then I'll fail completely. Martha, here we are on the limb ship, and uh, one can almost imagine we're on our way to the moon, or we've arrived at the moon, as a matter of fact. Yes, it's hard to realize that in a few years, an American astronaut will be looking through this window out onto the lunar surface. We often use this power of coming out of the sea onto land. And I'd like to take it further. You know, in the sea, we could not develop civilization for a simple reason. In the ocean, you cannot have fire, and fire is a key to all our civilization, all our technology. I believe in the same way when we get beyond the atmosphere, out into the new environment of space, we will find new powers, new capabilities, as much beyond fire as that was beyond anything that could be done in the sea. About half a century ago, the great Russian space pioneer Tsiolkovsky said, Earth is the cradle of mankind, but you cannot live in the cradle forever. And that is very true, and out here among the stars lies the destiny of mankind. Uh, my first scientific interest was in dinosaurs, and I know exactly why, because my father, whom I don't remember much, gave me a cigarette card, and there was a picture of a dinosaur on it. That fascinated me, and for a long time I collected fossils. And then I turned to astronomy, I think under the influence of the science fiction magazines, the old amazing stories in the late 20s. But for a while I didn't realize that space stuff was more than fantasy until I came across this book which really changed my life, The Conquest of Space by David Lasser, published about 1931. Uh, Lasser was an American writer. He was only in his 20s when he wrote, he was only about 20 years old when he wrote this. I met him a few years ago as an old man and thanked him for changing my life. That was the first book that explained the principles of space flight, you know, accurately and scientifically in English. So, you know, the exploration of the universe is much more than a contest between two mid-20th century powers. It's really the next stage in the evolution of mankind. I'm sure that the men who built the first boats out of reeds and logs uh, never imagined the ocean-going commerce of today or the great nations beyond the sea. And similarly, the men who started the conquest of the air only a lifetime ago. Couldn't have conceived of the great jets that are now roaring through the skies. Well, what we're starting now with our drive into space is the next step in evolution. Out on the moon and planets are the new frontiers which our age needs so desperately. The next generation will explore the planets, bring back new knowledge, answering old questions, 
and of course asking fresh ones. My very first uh, homemade telescope was made from a, a cardboard tube and uh, a lens which I think came from a magic lantern or maybe a cinema projector, a fairly long focus length lens and then I had a short focus lens as an eyepiece. Anybody can make a telescope that way. And the problem is the image is upside down but then it doesn't matter in astronomy. From the Earth's surface you cannot see anything, oh I suppose much more than the Pentagon under I think you might see the shadows and paws, but it has to be pretty big on the moon and under the right illumination to see anything. So it wasn't until you know, the space age opened we had an idea of the surface details of the moon. Now I'm rather limited in my movements. I don't often get out to the telescope. So I fitted a video camera here so I can sit in my office and get the moon's image on the TV screen and record it and move, fly over the surface of the moon by using the remote controls. Uh, Apollo 8, Houston, uh, what does the old moon look like from 60 miles, over? expected in my lifetime to see men reach the moon. I never expected to see the exploration of the solar system done in such detail by, of course, robot probes. So the mystery of Mars, what it's like on the moons of Jupiter, all these things have been revealed in, in the 1970s mostly. That is a big surprise and a delightful one. So, you know, these dots in the sky my youth, now we, they're real worlds, I've seen this happen, that's perhaps the most marvelous thing. I, I'm very happy, although I'm sorry, of course, manned exploration hasn't proceeded as fast as it would, as I'd hoped. What has happened in space has far exceeded my wildest dreams of what I would know in my lifetime. to see is the detection of life beyond the earth or even better of course the detection of intelligent life beyond the earth possibly by picking up a radio signal from space or possibly and this is rather more uh, fantastic discovering that some of the astronomical phenomena which still puzzle us are in fact artifacts the results of cosmic engineering by some super civilization that would really make the human race sort of feel its true place in the universe. We've cut us down to size. We should sing, now that it's in the public domain, Happy Birthday. Has it finally happened? Stanley Kubrick would be 95 years old today. Wow. Hard to believe. 95 years young. And what's almost impossible to believe was that he's been gone for 25. That's almost. Next year. Very hard to believe. Best way to celebrate, I think, is to buy a bottle of water, drink it, then refill it with tap water, and then hand it to a loved one, and then drive them somewhere at exactly the speed limit.
And that way we can all celebrate the great SK. I'm going to need some context <laughs> for this. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently he, part of the germ thing was that he needed new bottles of water all the time. Fresh, like he couldn't reuse a bottle of water. Wow, okay. But they ran out of bottled water because bottled water wasn't a thing really in 1967, 68. So yeah. single-use plastics weren't really yeah, back so, then. So, so Tony Frame would just go fill it up from the tap and then dry it off and give it to him, and he'd drink it, and then he'd go fill it up in the tap and give it to him. And he'd drink the same bottle all day and never notice it was tap water. <laughs> I think, you know, how, how else during this podcast... Can we celebrate the birthday of who we consider probably maybe the greatest filmmaker of all time? So we decided we're not going to talk about him at all. <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday. Uh, this wasn't for, our idea, though. Except for our Patreon subscribers. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this wasn't, wasn't our plan, though. But the strike has struck, and we're... Trying to maintain some we're, solidarity. We're trying to stay mum. The unions that are striking, and one one of those things means that you know if you if you are in, in support, they would ask you to not discuss films or TV in your podcast because that would be promotional for the studios. You know this doesn't really apply for a fifty-five-year-old film, except that it's on the platform of the studio that we're not going to mention. <laughs> but we're doing this. Um, because we want people to be able to afford to make a living making entertainment when the people at the not only at the top but on all the executive levels are doing just fine. And the reason for the strike is they're trying to take away profits that are handed down going to the people that are creating <laughs> this product. We we can't abide. Yeah, it it's the, pure. we cannot abide by this. This yeah. this is a travesty. It's about like an existential threat, like you said, to, to the world of entertainment and arts by definition, because these are the same CEOs that want to replace these writers and actors with artificial intelligence. And just crank out, you know, the, the least common denominator, the, the cheapest, easiest Watered down thing that you can nonsense. do. Minimum effort for maximum profit. profit. Minimum investment for maximum profit is literally how you become a great CEO and how you make your yeah. company the most profitable. So, therefore, that mentality, the more they own, they've owned them for a while, but now that it's gotten so much bigger, the deck's so stacked and so far removed from the creative side of things, he's calling the shots by and large. You're not going to have anybody thinking any other way than how to minimally invest for the maximum amount of profit, squeezing the turnip of whatever the, the sickening turn that is IP intellectual property. They will remake Bugs Life in real life. <laughs> they, they will cast real people to play ants and beetles. Do you want to bear witness to that? I, I think if they did it like Ladislaw Stadovic style, like the chick animator, the, the real taxidermied bugs. I could be into that. Or maybe like the a Jan Spockmeyer, like Ooh, stop Spockmire, motion stop kind motion. of bizarre, yes. you know, like, <laughs> oh, Lord. Yeah. Taxidermied <laughs> creatures just... Completely voiceovered by totally strange yeah, by AI people. voices. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's the, uh, actually they can just hire that gymnastics troupe, checks and balances. <laughs> <laughs> 
Or the trampoline troop, the bouncing checks. <laughs> oh my god. Or the really on, blue, or the on, blue bloods, on. check your privilege. I have a Polish audio editor. I have a check one too. Hey. <laughs> uh, we'll be back with content when this is resolved. In that the meantime, is... we'll be talking about Arthur C. Clarke. Hey, we and... got we got tons of other things that yeah. we can talk about. We've been meaning to do these biographical series. When we first started the show, we thought, well, at some point we can do these series about Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick. So Never like a better time. time. Never a better it's time. It's like summer reading program. Uh, but without those. having to go back to school, which is the best. Mr. Case used to have a table where they would put the, that. the books out. And listen, whether you're in school or not, if you're in a bookstore and they have those summer reading programs, check tables, them out. Check them out because they're going to be the even best if it's, of the best. It, even if it's YA novels. Yeah. Oh, I mean, some honestly. of the best. Jones VSO Resources Center. Arthur C. Clarke was born in Somerset in 1917, but he's lived in Sri Lanka for the past 40 years. Inventor of the communications satellite, Clark was a scientist before he became a science fiction writer. Now almost 80, he can't get about too well, and he's looked after by his adoptive Sri Lankan family and friends. I'll be happy to see you in March. He spends most days in his study, and last month he finished a new novel, 3001. It's the latest in the Space Odyssey series, which began with 2001 and the creation of HAL, the world's most famous computer. I just realised that my friend HAL was conceived before the microchip, uh, because it was in 1964, 1965, that Kubrick and I were working on 2001. So I guess... I, how it was conceived, if you even thought about details, has been based on uh, old transistors and maybe even a few vacuum tubes. <laughs> well, round about 1960, I wrote a short story called Dial F for Frankenstein, which was what happened when the world's telephone networks, when the first satellite links were set up. This was before there were any, you know. And the, s the network became conscious and took over the world. Now, Tim Berners-Lee, who's regarded as the inventor of the World Wide Web, attributes that story to, you know, giving him the idea. So I guess I'm the godfather of the World Wide Web, with all its implications, <laughs> all the implications that the word godfather has. You're, you're not implying that the web has become the, the Frankenstein of the internet, well, are you? <laughs> I, sometimes I think it has. Mr. Clark. You've said uh, not too long ago that in terms of communications, we're still in the semaphore and uh, smoke stage. Would you put that in context, please? Well, as far as the home is concerned, we have TV and radio and telephone. The telephone is the only way we can communicate outside yet. We get a lot of communication inwards through the radio and TV. But we're going to get devices which will enable us to send much more information to our friends, so they'll be able to see us, we'll be able to see them, we'll be able to exchange picture, pictorial information, um, graphical information, data, books and so forth. What would uh, the ideal communications device be in your eyes? Well, it would be a high-definition TV screen and a typewriter keyboard and through this, you can exchange any type of information, send messages to your friends, so which they can read at not, they can wait when they get up, they can see what messages have come in the night. Uh, you can call in through this any information you want, airline flights, price of things at the supermarket, books you've uh, always wanted to read, news, you selectively, you can say, you'll tell the machine, I'm interested in such and such items, sports, 
politics and so forth, and the machine will hunt the main central library and bring all this to you selectively, just what you want, not all the junk which you have to get you know, when you buy the two or three pounds of wood pulp, which is the daily newspaper. And incidentally, this is going to save whole forests for posterity, because the newspaper is on the way out, and we can't, we're not going to ship, ship all this tons and tons of paper around when we all need this information. Well, if we have face-to-face -face communications from our home, does this uh, clue in with your slogan, don't commute, communicate? Yes, and uh, we are moving slowly, perhaps not too slowly towards this kind of world. And this is the way we're going to solve the traffic problem ultimately, not by covering the world with concrete, but by getting rid of the traffic. And in the world of the future, travel will be for pleasure, not necessity. And how will this, uh, how will this sort of communication and travel for pleasure affect our social lives, do you think? In terms of, say, time zones. Yeah. Well, at least, well, it's going to affect our social lives in many ways, uh, as much as the automobile has done in the past, in many ways negatively, as much as the telephone has done in the past. How long have you used the internet here? Uh, oh, I don't know. I can't remember life before it. <laughs> <laughs> you said you use email, and I presume you use the web. Can you give us some insight into uh, what kind of things you do with, with the well, internet access? Nearly all my correspondence is now in email. I get no old-fashioned snail mail or flying snail mail, except books. It, all the important letters, communications, come through email. So I'm totally reliant on it. And it speeded up life incredibly. I get more mail a day now than when I was living in England. I got in a, in a week, in a month. <laughs> Is that a good thing? <laughs> yes or no. I'm, uh, I feel you know, deprived. I don't have my 20 or 30 emails waiting for me in the morning. <laughs> the way the computer has revolutionized life, not just for mathematicians, but for any scholar. I came across an example that recently about a Greek scholar who'd spent, I think it was a lady, who spent her life looking for some particular reference in the whole of Greek literature. And uh, after 10, 20, 30 years of research, she'd found, say, 400 references. Now, the whole of Greek literature is now on a CD-ROM. And she put the CD-ROM into her computer, and in one afternoon, it had found her 400 references and two or 300 she'd never discovered. In other words, a computer can multiply the life of a scholar or an engineer. Almost anybody who deals with ideas can make them live for thousands of years. There's a complete spectrum of writing in science fiction, from the extreme fantasy, which contains very little science, really magic and fairy, up-to-date fairy stories, of which I guess the Lord of the Rings is perhaps the best example, to the extremely uh, hardcore engineering science fiction, which at its worst is nothing more than a sort of gimmick story about some engineering gadget or idea. Uh, there's room for fiction in that whole band, and I have done occasional work in everything except extreme fantasy. But on the whole, I regard myself as a hardcore science fiction writer. In other words, I've never written anything which, or very seldom written anything which I thought could not happen. Often I wouldn't like it to happen, but I think it could happen. I've always tried to base my science fiction on reality, on known facts. Although I have also written some fantasy which obviously couldn't happen and, you know, and. Uh, 
It's very hard to draw a distinction between science fiction and fantasy. People have been trying for years to do it. But my definition is this, that science fiction is something that could happen in the universe as we think we know it is. Though usually we wish it would, usually we wouldn't like it to happen. Fantasy is something that couldn't happen in the universe that we know, although often we only wish it could. I was fascinated by science fiction as a boy, and I read very little but science fiction and science fact all through my youth. It never occurred to me, though, that I'd ever be able to earn a living writing science fiction. And that's I went into the civil service and later into the Air Force. But all through that time, I was writing occasionally amateur pieces, some of which were published. And then almost inevitably and gradually, uh, I found that I was earning more and more money writing my science fiction and eventually became a, a full-time profession. I consider myself very lucky that it happened this way. I suppose the greatest literary influence on me was H.G. Wells. Then, to a smaller extent, Jules Verne. But most of all, Olaf Stapleton, whose book Last and First Men, which was published in 1930, I must have read about a year later, and that really did have a tremendous impact on me by making me realize the extent of, the possible extent of our history and time and space, you know, how enormous the universe was and how long we might exist and how many races of men there might be. Last and First Men was the book which I think shaped my literary career. Then other writers like uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, his Mars stories, his stories of the Earth's core, of course they're not in the same uh, class from the literary point of view, but they did fire my imagination. And then the American E. E. Smith, his Skylark stories made a great impact on me. C.S. Lewis's space trilogy had a considerable impact on me in a negative way. I was very angry with his attack on space travel and space travel societies. It was obviously getting at the British Interplanetary Society. And we had quite a correspondence and met once, quite amicably, I might say, although we, we just agreed to disagree. Another point of disagreement between Lewis and myself was, of course, religion. He was a devout Christian, and I have no religious beliefs, although I'm fascinated by the idea of God, who comes into my stories, I guess, in various guises. Uh, in fact, you might say that, in a way, many of my stories have been about the quest for God, even though I don't necessarily believe that he exists. The idea of contact with extraterrestrial beings is something that's always fascinated me and has been a main theme of my stories. I'm sure it will happen one day. I think it's possible it may have happened in the remote past. If we're exploring space now, then obviously superior intelligences must have been doing this for millions of years, and quite possibly they've come here many times. I am quite sure it's not happening now, and all the stories of contact we read in the sensational papers as of now are just nonsense. If it happens, we'll know in about five minutes. Although, of course, there were many critics of space travel, perhaps the most famous uh, one was the statement which the astronomer Royal, Richard Woolley, was supposed to have said that space travel is utter bilge. Well, what Paul Woolley really said was this, all this writing about space travel is utter bilge. To go to the moon would cost as much as a small war. Well, that was pretty accurate. And if he'd said, 90% of the writing about space travel is utter bilge, he'd have probably been right there as well. Bonafide scientist who was also a bonafide literary genius invented <laughs> communication satellites. Yes. And won multiple Hugo and Nebula awards. awards and best-selling author for the stories. 
for the prose, for the artistry and the evocation and the, the, the human spirit and the soul and the invention and the creativity, but also worked out mechanically, worked out scientifically because his mind was so interested in those processes his whole life since he was a kid that it was only cool if it worked in the way he was thinking of it. You know, like the cool part was making the elevator work for the Fountains of Paradise. You know, we grew up in the 90s where that was a thing, right? You were learning that the future of space travel is going to be, you're going to take an elevator. Yeah, space elevators. That was 100% the way it was going to go in the 90s. Decades before he wrote Fountains of Paradise and put that in there, and that became pretty much until it was the like resurgence the of... Dyson Sphere. Yeah. You know, these higher class technological advancements. Mm-hmm. Until the rocket comeback of a few years ago, those were still in play as yeah. pretty equally viable options when we hadn't picked one yet. Yeah. Now we have, and I'm so glad. <laughs> the space elevator was invented by a St. Petersburg engineer, Yuri Atsutanov. If you could lay a cable from the satellite in the stationary orbit fixed over the same spot on the equator, down to the Earth's surface, you could establish an elevator system and run your payloads up and down by electricity. No rockets involved. And the cost is incredibly small. You need about 100 pounds worth of electricity to carry a human being, a human passenger, from the Earth up to the orbit. And the round trip is only about 10 pounds because you recover most of the energy coming back. I'm giving a major address at the International Astronautical Federation's Congress in Munich next month, a one-hour paper on the space elevator. Some writings of, of life, life on space colonies picture life not too far from what we know it uh, on Earth today. Could I ask you to speak to those parallels? I don't believe in sort of parks and it's carried into space the way some of these illustrations show a sort of idyllic uh, rural environments in space station. Well, I mean, that's, I think that's sort of ridiculous. How do you think the, the general public will respond? Do you think after, I think, as you probably said, after a few color supplements uh, that they'll just pass over it? Well, um, as I've said many times, it depends on the form it takes. If it's just a message from space, it may have been on the way for a million years and, you know, they're probably extinct and there's no possibility of interaction. They'll have a long-term, slow psychological effect, depending again on the contents of the signal. One of the things that intrigues me in 3001, uh, your new book, is your idea of the sort of space elevator, a, a permanently orbiting ring uh, above the Earth, connected to Earth by a fabric made out of Buckminster Fullerenes, which would allow a person to be uh, lifted from the surface of the Earth up to this space station at a cost of only about $100 worth of electricity. Now, this is an idea I developed much further in another novel called The Fountains of Paradise, where I described the building of the space elevator, incidentally from a mountain in Sri Lanka. Now, that book was recently carried up in the space shuttle by the crew of Atlantis uh, when they did the tether experiment. And I have a wonderful photograph of Jeff Hoffman holding the Fountains of Paradise, floating in, of course, in space beside him with the Earth in the background. Not 
wouldn't it be cool in an abstract way to have an elevator in space and I will wax rhapsodically about it, you know. No, this is a this is a left brain genius and a right brain genius functioning simultaneously, at 100%. yeah. You think when someone is able to understand things like quantum mechanics or very intricate engineering or propulsion or these people are almost singular in a tenacious way and they're the ones that push the envelope and push the boundaries of this technology but they may not be good at just talking to people and the, the best the, surgeons don't always have the best bedside manner no there there's a detachment what's so great about science communicators is they're able to bridge the gap engineers and scientists that are deep in their fields they're so laden with the jargon and the internal uh, workflow of their processes that they're unable to portray this to a layman in a way that's comprehensible science communicators take that information and digest it in a way that's palatable another interesting fact um, Buckminster Fullerene, the material that will make this possible, uh, was of course named after <coughs> Bucky Fuller, who I last saw in this very room. <coughs> and a couple of weeks ago, <coughs> the chemist who, one of the co-discoverers of this material, got the Nobel Prize. So all these things are, you know, pointing in the direction one day we may be able to make the space elevator, and then the universe will open up. When I was a very small boy, probably only about 10 years old, I came across a book which made a tremendous impression on me. Frank Bullen's The Cruise of the Cachalot, an account of a whaling expedition. And there was a picture of a battle between the sperm whale and the giant squid, its principal food. It was a revelation to me that such creatures existed, and I've always been fascinated by this strange monster of the deep, about which so little is known. I think the giant squid qualifies as one of the world's wonders because it may be the largest of all animals. And I don't think anybody could have imagined it if we didn't know that it actually exists. There are attempts being made now to film the giant squid by putting video cameras on sperm whales. And the hope is that the sperm whales will go down to get breakfast and photograph the giant squid as they do it. It's, it's a pretty long shot, but I hope it's successful. I mean, his love for underwater discovery just fascinates me to no end. Mm -hmm. Discovery is right, right? Because didn't he, like, discover a shipwreck? Underwater archaeology and biology. I mean, polymath. Yes. His passion for diving has provided Clark with material for half a dozen of his non-fiction books as well as the thrill of discovering treasure on the Great Bass's Reef in the Indian Ocean in 1963. Curiously enough, I got interested in the sea entirely because of my interest in space. I realized back in the late 40s that underwater one could reproduce something very close to weightlessness, which is, of course, one of the main characteristics of spaceflight. So I took up diving and used to go into the water and close my eyes and pretend that I was in space floating around and that is the reason why I got involved in underwater exploration and then I realized of course that in the sea one encounters strange creatures and there's a lot many parallels between the sea and space and all the astronauts and all the cosmonauts now do much of their training 
underwater. Like neutral buoyancy lab, where they did the initial testing for the spacesuits mm -hmm. and the training for low Earth orbit engineering mm -hmm. and construction, that kind of thing. That awakens another love, doesn't it? That he wasn't expecting to have because yeah. he went in there to close his eyes <laughs> and float around <laughs> and pretend he's in space. But then all of a sudden it's like, oh, whoa, damn, there's all these other creatures. It's here. a whole nother world. Another world. And, you know, we've talked about this at length, how the ocean is much like our podcast, <laughs> an endless fount. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me that during San Diego Comic-Con, there was a panel of directors and one of them was saying that they had a project set up with James Cameron. It sounded really interesting. The moderator asked him, so what happened? He said, well, the, the deal came up and I tried to call Jim and, and I couldn't get a hold of him. The guy said, oh, so he ghosted you? And he says, no, he was in the Mariana Trench. <laughs> so he had a good excuse. He was performing as experimental subs, maximum depth. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you haven't seen that documentary, yes. <laughs> check that one out. That's great. And then I decided to go further afield and visit some of the really spectacular underwater landscapes of this world. And I went to the Great Barrier Reef of Australia first, back in 1954. On the way, I passed through Ceylon, and I fell in love with the country, and came back a year or so later, and I've been living here ever since, building up my underwater business, doing my writing. And most of my friends are here. I like it here very much. Clark has a thriving business in underwater holidays and training in sport diving. Preparing boats and equipment and getting ready for the start of the season is a time-consuming job for him and his partner and business manager, Hector Ekonayaka, and his wife, Valerie, a highly qualified diving instructor. When he's not riding, he's run out there running lines and tying up boats and weatherizing all the equipment and everything. The fullness, like the roundness of that life, right? It's a balanced life. Very balanced. He, he's, he was not one of the typewriter obsessives, you know, or the alcoholic smash your fist in the wall or the manic depressive type or a specific drive that wasn't out of reason or logic, which is only to say that sometimes those things are glamorized when they weren't really that much fun for the people to go through and maybe it in influenced their work in good and bad ways but it doesn't necessarily mean that a person with a balanced life let's see that the writing of a person with a balanced life is going to be dull as a group of holiday making pupils sets off to dive at trincomalee on the northeast coast arthur clark stays behind and heads for another of his sporting loves table tennis When he's at home, he hardly ever misses his afternoon visit to the Otter Swimming Club a few hundred yards from his house. If he isn't challenging the other regulars to matches, he improves his game against a demon robot, which is quite capable of playing games of its own. His cool, comfortable home once belonged to the Anglican Bishop of Colombo. It stands in a spacious tropical garden, which gives him room to keep a variety of pet animals. Ah, come on, come on, come on, come on. No, 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 Come on, come on, come on. Pushpa, demanding a lot of attention, is one of a pair of leaf-eating monkeys, but hidden away in the garden are also pet squirrels and birds. 
Over the years, Clark has also had a succession of German shepherd dogs as his favorite companions. He was married for a few years, but by the time he moved to Sri Lanka, he had certainly accepted who he was and was with a partner that he had for life, as far as I know. Mike Wilson, all through Space Odyssey, the book, Mike Wilson um, would, would not be his partner for life. Was he an expat as well? He was, and I think... He was American. Yeah, it sounds like an American. <laughs> I was going to ask where he was from, but. <laughs> <laughs> he later found Leslie Akanayake, who uh, he's buried with. Now, this guy, Mike Wilson, was making like this epic James Bond parody in Sinhalese that was going to be like a big budget Sri Lankan film. Wow. While Kubrick and Clark were writing 2001. Simultaneously, wow. And guess how he was bankrolling this James Bond parody. Nose candy? No, nothing <laughs> salacious like that. And he just used Arthur C. Clark's money. Oh, wow. With his permission? So, yes, because he was loyal and, oh, and supportive and we've thought got a real, maybe this uh, would be a good hit. Real Hadrian situation. Like a local right? hit, maybe, yeah. Yeah, is this going to be... My boy Hadrian. Yeah, I mean, we're just paying... How how much is too much? Like, when do you recoup your losses and say it's time to go home? This is what's going on hmm. for Arthur C. Clarke while he's working with Stanley. That's got to be stressful. So it might have actually been a relief at times to go to New York and, and, work, and visit or to London. Yeah. But it also was like, what's going on back home? You know, because... Oh, yeah. There Com were parties. Communication's not the same I'm not over sure, there. Mike, yeah, I'm not sure that they had a, a monogamous relationship mm. anyway. But regardless, I don't think that he was necessarily as much of a fan of having these massive parties. Do you happen to know, what, was there an age difference? <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, that Mike Wilson was a little bit younger. So that might have a, a contributing factor, mm. lifestyles and... and times of life and it's a kind of a like i can't believe you're doing this but i would do anything for you exactly and then you know <laughs> the the guy knows that and uh, uh, apparently you know because it didn't last past you know that point that, sure. that he met leslie so obviously not obviously this, he ended this up might be a right stupid person. question but was leslie a man or yes a okay yes okay and, and, okay well, because <laughs> yeah, yeah because arthur had married a woman uh, in the 50s as, as many gay men, Marilyn Mayfield. Yeah, they, they actually um, were married for about a decade. Wow. Yeah. Sri Lanka also was a more tolerant culture towards homosexuality. So in general, it was kind of the perfect fit considering everything else that he was in love with about the country, the, the geography. Specifically, I guess, the thing that got him most of all in the first trip that he took in the 50s was Sigaria, right? This thing, the Lion's Rock. And it's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, this massive, what he describes himself, Arthur C. Clarke describes as a monolith mm -hmm. mountain. <laughs> I mean, and this is in the 50s when he saw it. And he decided to write a book about it in the 60s. So he didn't cool. write it until the 70s, but... He was, do you think, I mean, that has to be. Oh, for sure. An influence. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, because 
when they had to put a name on the TMA series, Arthur wrote it. Yeah. I mean, it was based on the Sentinel and probably other ideas from other short stories published or not Mm -hmm. that he'd had, which is why Stanley wanted to work with him to to tap into that mind. The Cigarilla in is translated as the Lion's Rock. It was established as like a, a palace basically in the fifth century. And it's got these fountains and water gardens all around it. And it's got a, at the top of this big square rock, if you can imagine a, a square mesa just made of a big table rock, that's pretty much what this is. But to then have this palace carved into it and, and elaborate frescoes. It reminds me of some of the early Indian monolithic structures mm. that were essentially, you know, either like great steps or um you know like a some kind of hard igneous stone structure that they were able to carve out into temples very intricately people often ask me why i live in sri lanka and my flip answer is 30 british winters The serious reason is that I came here because of my interest in underwater exploring. I fell in love with the country, found some fascinating places in it, made many friends. The place which most intrigued me, and I saw this in the very first year, was the rock fortress of Siguria, which I think is one of the wonders of the world. Quite as much a wonder as the pyramids or Angkor Wat or all the other ones. It's on a more human scale and it is, I think, magical and mysterious. The name means Lion Rock. Well, I wasn't thinking about the Fantasy of Paradise for 20 years. I was thinking about Sigaria on and off for much of that period of time. Because I first saw it in 1956 on my first visit to Ceylon. And the place has haunted me ever since. And probably in the 60s or so, I thought of writing something about it. Indeed, I did do some articles on the subject. And then I became interested in Adams Peak, the sacred mountain, in 1969, when I climbed it with Jeremy Bernstein, the New Yorker science writer, who did a profile on me. And then, probably around uh, the, around about 1970 or so, I uh, did decide to do a book, and I had the title in my mind, The Fountains of Paradise, from a quotation, um, from the Middle Ages, in fact. From Ceylon to Paradise is 40 leagues. There may be heard the sound of the fountains of paradise. This phrase struck in my mind. And I thought it might be about weather control or something. That was, in fact, the first idea. Indeed, I conceived it originally as a movie, as a film, not as a novel. And I wrote a a short uh, outline on the theme of weather control, using the sacred mountain as a base for a weather control installation. And it wasn't until about 1965 that I first heard of the space elevator, the cable from the Earth's equator to a synchronous orbit, that all these three different themes, or more than three, finally melded together. When you first came up with the concept of communication satellites, uh, didn't many scientists think this was a pretty far out and unreasonable idea? Well, it was far out. It was 36,000 kilometers out. But um, no, not at that time. This was 1945, and uh, the V-2 rockets had arrived, and when my paper was published, the atomic bomb had been dropped. So at that time, people were prepared to accept almost anything. And I don't think, I don't remember any negative criticisms. In fact, I don't remember any, any comments at all, to tell the truth. But there's certainly no feeling this was nonsense. And t- 10 years before, there would have been, but 1945, no. 
the British Interplanetary Society, which I was associated, it was formed in 1933, I believe, and is now very active, of course, but during the war we went into suspended animation. Meanwhile, in Germany, another group of young enthusiasts, of which Dr. Werner von Braun was the, now the best known, um, tried to develop rockets, and they found the only way they could do that was to get the military involved. that led to the V-2 rocket, which bombarded London and other places. That was, in a sense, the first spaceship. And in fact, Werner was arrested by the Gestapo because he was more interested in developing spaceships than in developing a rocket for military purposes. And there was some truth in the allegation. After the war, Dr. Von Braun and many of his team went to America. They had the old choice of going to Russia, and they decided, no, we'd go to America. And that was the foundation of the American rocket program. It seems incredible to me that the first experiments of liquid-fueled rockets in Goddard back in 1926, who believed that in only 40 years, They'd grown from a little thing you could hold in your hand and rose a few hundred feet to thousands of tons of hardware that could take men to the moon and back. You had a nice idea one time about a vacation in a vacuum. Well, uh, the people will be going into vacuum, you know, and uh, or into space stations when the uh, space shuttle, you know, the DC-3 of space, anyone will be able to fly up to space in a in a few, in 10 years' time. Those of us here now will we'll, oh, yes. we'll all be in space if we want to someday? Yeah, absolutely. Is that right? Um, you know, it's a strange thought. It's exactly three years now, isn't it, since the first landing on the moon. It seems a, a lifetime in other ways, and uh, only uh, a yeah. short moment in others. That's right. It does seem like only and yesterday, and yet it seems like and three the, years since we know, saw those men dancing on the moon yes. the first time? And it's, a, it's a sad in some way that the very last mm -hmm. Apollo flight is coming up in December. And that's the end of the line, you know, the Apollo 17. There are no more plans to go to the moon. Are you sort of sad about that? Or? I'm sad in, in, in some ways because it's a tremendous experience, a tremendous thing. I hope to see the last Apollo flight. In fact, I hope you may see it with me. A group of us are going to take the Queen Elizabeth probably and go down and observe the last flight, which would be a night launch. Well, we're going to go down on anchor off launch. Yes, this is the first night launch. Oh, I didn't know that. And it'll be spectacular. It'll light up the whole of Florida. So we're going to take either the Queen or the Rotterdam, or probably both, a number of people are interested, and anchor off Cocoa Beach and observe this. It'll be a grandstand view of the rocket going up over the water, you know, the water, reflection over the water, the whole of Florida lit up. In a way, the Apollo program was an aberration. It was driven by politics, by the Cold War, and it would not, not have happened so soon, apart from that. I believe that this nation should commit itself achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. I was lucky enough to be present at the launch of the Saturn V that took the first men to the moon. And uh, I've seen quite a number of the launches, but of course that is the memorable one. At Cape Kennedy, it's a wonderful day for a wonderful event, the first man flight to the moon. Dawn was just broken here about half an hour ago, 
And just look at this awe-inspiring sight behind here, the great moon rocket ready on its pad, like a great cathedral tower of ice it's looked here all night and just fading now in the morning light. 35 seconds and counting. We'll lead up to an ignition sequence start at 8.9 seconds. This will lead up as we build up the thrust to a liftoff. If all goes well, at zero. The spectator has to be miles away in case of an accident. And so the rocket is a little tiny pencil on the horizon. And the countdown takes place. The numbers, you know, peel off on the board. And the suspense builds up. It seems to go quite quickly towards the end. The engines are on. Four, three, two, one, zero. We have commit, we have... Suddenly there's a puff of smoke, and this little pencil lifts so, so slowly into the sky, in, in total silence. And then, a minute or so later, the sound wave reaches you and shakes you like a dog shaking a rat. It's not just sound, it's you know, a, a physical force. And at that moment, this tiny pencil is no longer a little remote object. It just dominates your you know, field of vision. And it, because it climbs up into the sky and curves away and disappears into the clouds, and that's it. But, you know, when we saw the Apollo 11 take off, you know, we knew that was a page of history being turned. The Saturn V is the most powerful machine ever built by man. Uh, although the figure is rather meaningless, it's been calculated the horsepower is about 150 million. Imagine 150 million horses all pulling three men up into the sky. And it's also one of the most complex. There are hundreds of thousands of components, you know, all of which had to work. In fact, uh, again, that seems incredible that engineering was so superb and much of the credit for that of course goes to the late Werner von Braun and his team at Huntsville. Of course no single individual could do a great deal and there were about 300,000 people involved in the Apollo program to put men on the moon and uh, the total cost was about 20 billion dollars way back in, in the 1960s when 20 billion dollars was real money. Although 3,000 tons take off from the launch pad, uh, the lower stage, the biggest stage, drops off in the Atlantic. Uh, the second stage also falls off. And, and the third stage, again, the, all the initial stages drop off one by one. We got the first step. Roger, we confirm, skirt step. The Saturn V is the equivalent of going to New York and the Queen Mary with three passengers and sinking after one voyage. Hell of a way to run a railroad. Yeah, Houston, Apollo 11, that Saturn gave us a magnificent ride. 
But I feel the rocket will be to space travel just what the airship was to aeronautics. It'll be an important part of history and then it'll be obsolete. It was the only way it could be done in the time frame set by President Kennedy in this decade. My own book about the first flight to the moon, Prelude to Space, I very optimistically set it in 1978. I didn't really believe it would happen so soon, actually, because it happened only 10 years earlier. The speed of development of space travel is really quite incredible. Yet what is even more incredible is the fact that having gone to the moon, we left it for 20 years or more. Oh, it! I've said sometimes, more than half seriously, that we don't really belong here. We were born in a zero-gravity environment. We evolved in the sea. We were weightless, which is one reason why I became a skin diver, to get through weightlessness. And we're on our way to another environment where we'll also be weightless and we'll have all the freedom of movement. And because I, look, I only wish I had a chance of going to a space station so I would no longer be handicapped by my faulty undercarriage. Did you get to see a launch? It was Jealous. Great. Jelly. It was I, I saw one as <laughs> practically an infant and didn't remember it. So you remember hearing Arthur talk about it? That was what I remember experiencing because it was a spacex launch the september 2021 i was at, at cape canaveral and you know at the kennedy space center I happened to be fortunate enough to be there when a launch was happening with the first all civilian flight that they had i don't know if you remember that was a big deal yeah the big the big public test for and that capsule dragon what dragon capsule yeah everybody yeah. was there i mean it was a big party out on the docks across from the space center mm. and you know we were all out there eating fried fish and waiting for the big moment and then you you see it and it's like a firework taking off and you see and then and then fuel crackles and sparks and off it goes and it's like ah kind of um, anticlimactic golf, golf claps and then all of a sudden you feel this slow <laughs> rumble and then you see the blinding flash when it separates from the booster and then you see plasma blasting across the sky oh amazing like jellyfish you know it's like the most surreal the only thing i can describe it close to is the Jupiter and Beyond sequence, where you're seeing this strange shape, just like a a, a wisp building over time of this globular energy, globular just energy, and it's saving. a kind of light that you can't, you've never seen before. You can't explain except to say maybe like a bubble, you know, the kind of the rainbow the iridescence, shimmer, of, iridescence the, yeah. of the bubble, a little bit like that. Wow. I can't wait to actually uh, see one of those, the you know, that I'll remember. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> the most uh, awe-inspiring thing for me, for sure, was once they vanished into just a tiny dot of light. Yeah. Because it all happened so fast that you think, you're like, well, just a minute ago, you were right there. Like, you were right there. They were th there. And now it's incomprehensible. <laughs> distance away from you <laughs> <laughs> in the time it took me to eat a fried shrimp i mean they were hitting that eighty thousand foot ceiling yeah. and getting out into leo it was wow yeah 
definitely awe-inspiring. And then, of course, the shattering applause and shrieks of... I bet the jubilation is intense. When you have people with t-shirts on, like uh, team whoever family or friend group you're with from the actual astronaut and i bet support team Mm -hmm. family members too yes because we actually stumbled onto a party of people that were in the psycom side of things that were wow being seated in the science communication area and shake their hands all day yeah well they and they were elated to meet each other because they were all rocket spotters whatever you call them yeah this the equivalent of train spotters where they go around they have apps and everything where they track when launches are going to be around the world and if they can make it then they'll go and see as many launches as rockets as they can and they get to know each other through these groups and so then they finally meet in person at these events and chow down and how cool man blast off it it sounds um not dissimilar to the eclipse chasers oh cool they'll even take like plane flights where they know they'll be able to visibly be able to interact with the you were managing solar eclipse you you were managing a tech store in nashville when the solar eclipse happened that was 2017 right one of my favorite experiences yeah and if you haven't experienced a total solar eclipse if it's anywhere near you i would highly recommend it People, because Nashville happened to be kind of the epicenter of, or, or uh, the best view, the best view on, you know, what's, America. What's so sad is they had a huge event planned um, that they had staged at the Science, oh, science uh, Museum. Museum. It's such a cool place. Yeah, apparently a big cloud floated across right uh, at the totality. And I'm sitting in my apartment's backyard with my huge Celestron telescope. (laughs) And like, I've got video cameras and microphones running. (laughs) Look like a total fool with my welding goggles. And (laughs) I'm sure the neighbors were wild. You look like young Arthur C. Clarke is what you look like. Well, here we are in the middle of India on a beautiful, bright, sunny day. Yet we're waiting for one of the most awe-inspiring phenomenon that the whole natural world can show. A total eclipse of the sun. A splendid example of a mystery of the first kind. In a few minutes, this brightly lit landscape will become perfectly dark. But of course, this still terrifies many people, and indeed, even to a modern civilized man, it's quite an awe-inspiring experience. We know that the sun is 400 times bigger than the moon, but also 400 times further away. So by this very strange coincidence, the moon can almost exactly cover the sun at certain times of its orbit around the Earth, and that gives us a total eclipse. So this is a mystery which has been solved at the same time. There are a good many scientific mysteries about the sun which have not been solved, which is why astronomers travel all around the world so they can observe this wonderful phenomenon, which is a great scientific interest. Oh, man, it was an incredible experience. And not just visually, but such a surreal experience, because when you hit totality, the temperature, this was in the middle of summer of Nashville. So we were already pushing that 90 something degree ceiling mm. with a heat index, probably pushing 100. And all of a sudden, you've got like a 20 degree drop in temperature the strange lighting through shadows that happens is also a rare phenomenon where you can kind of see the eclipse through shade trees and uh power lines and all this any kind of obfuscation of the sun 
the birds yes go into this cacophonous kind of trilling mm -hmm. they're they're so confused and you know distraught by this they sound like crickets <laughs> yeah Were yeah making that kind of oh it was it was as loud as the night cicadas would be and which uh, also come out it it was just amazing and i remember listening back to the footage specifically listening to it mm. and how drastically everything changed we had a rooster living in the area which is hilarious we called him rooster booster <laughs> because of the, the famous uh, gas station um, beverage yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so strange because we were in town i mean we we didn't live on the outskirts or anything like that somebody was clearly you know rearing <laughs> roosters and chickens nearby and this one had gotten free lived in the apartment complex for six months or so yeah during the yeah 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 the um during the eclipse you you would hear the cockadoodle too as well strange i mean it really is upsetting on a, a number of levels and very entertaining on a number of levels yeah. too. <laughs> Already the light on this landscape, which was so brilliantly illuminated half an hour ago by the full tropical sun, is fading to a sort of gray. Did you hear that? The cock crowing. Already the animals know that something strange is happening. And in fact, the level of light here at the moment is something like that of Mars on a, on a fairly bright day. And it, it's quite cold now. I can feel when the wind blows. I feel as though I'm back in England. There is a corona, the most glorious sight. A great crown of light, the solar corona. Um, yeah. I was able to get some images of the corona, which was fantastic. Beautiful I images. Couldn't believe, couldn't believe those were possible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they look. Capture system that I made. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. Which did the job it looked pro through a, a dobsonian style telescope using a smartphone and blocking lenses mm -hmm. yeah solar filter so worked out really well it worked out great the craziest part about it was to me was the shadows or to be more precise the light in between the shadows which was like a the shape of a lemon or a semicircle or a fingernail with a as bright little lensing effect yes. on it so beautiful if you haven't look up these images especially with shade trees mm -hmm. because the way the mm. the light kind of reflects through the leaves i was just walking around in the backyard just staring surreal. at the ground but as Very much surreal. as i was staring at the sky because <laughs> yeah on the grass as it was diffused through the trees it was it was these it was like a, a disco ball effect it's unfortunate you know, that totality only lasts for just charms. a couple minutes really but yeah, that just long enough to perform some major ritual and basically incite any kind of local war mm. or, you know, sacrifice that yes. may have been on the, <laughs> on the back burner. Well, I guess it's time to whip out this sacrifice. Yes. <laughs> now, the the um, the Aztecs and probably the uh, early Chinese civilizations probably knew when these were coming mm -hmm. and had planned on them. And there, there's evidence that maybe um celestial alignments via like stonehenge mm -hmm. could, could have been yeah uh you know like a a purpose for its construction as well but yeah eclipses have been uh, we've probably talked about this you know at some point during our dawn of man eclipses have been a very powerful point of order for a lot of civilizations 
and uh, there there's a reason why uh, I think there's so much interest in studying them because the rarity that they occur and the uh, strange effects that it has on our terrestrial surface when it does happen. Sets off TMA1 here on Clavius every time there's an <laughs> eclipse, which also sets off that damn dog, which won't shut up. Last time I was at the commissary, I was stocked up on earplugs. Oh, <laughs> good. Yeah, because, oh, man. Oh, that last eclipse, that dog would not Ear shattering. Up. It was Ear shattering. That wonderful eclipse is what I call a mystery of the first kind. It was a mystery to our ancestors, but not to us. We know exactly how it was caused. We can enjoy an eclipse without fear, yet not without awe. This is the latest issue I've received here of the Journal of the Royal Astronomical Society, no less, now called Astronomy and Geophysics, the February-March issue. And in the middle of this is something really extraordinary. Now, that is a enormous structure of you know, some kind of galaxy, but right in the center is something that looks very much like a gear wheel. <laughs> some gear, it's many, many times the size of the solar system. What is it? Is it a natural object? Is it some inconceivable artifact? I don't know. What do you think?